Many Protestants seized on the execution of Charles I in January 1649 and the end of the monarchy as the opportunity to finally complete the unfinished reformation of the English Church, which had begun in the 16th century. But in fact, Protestantism fragmented into multiple competing groups, such as the Levellers and Quakers, who often vehemently disagreed with each other. Attempts by government to establish cohesion repeatedly failed. Distinguished historian Anne Hughes, Emerita Professor of Early Modern History at Keele University, explains to publisher Mike Gibbs how this fragmentation resulted in Britain's failure to find religious conformity. In the Grand Remonstrance, November 1641, the House of Commons insisted that it is far from our purpose or desire to let loose the golden reins of discipline and government in the church to leave private persons or particular congregations to take up what form of divine service they please. For we hold it requisite that there should be, throughout the whole realm, a conformity to that order which the laws enjoin according to the word of God. Thus, in November 1641, the House of Commons declared its commitment to religious conformity to a reformation of the whole Church of England. The fall of Charles's personal rule, and for many prominent Puritans, a reason or justification for taking up arms against the king, was the chance to complete at long last the reformation of the halfly reformed English church. The 1640s looked that there would be a great opportunity at long last to complete the reformation. But in the view of many mainstream or orthodox Puritans, the 1640s was an opportunity missed. And by the 1640s indeed, religious reformation seemed to have led instead to religious fragmentation, horrifying error and a world turned upside down. The first point I want to make is that there are pre-existing tensions or disagreements within Puritanism. As well as a drive towards general reformation, indicated in my earlier quote from the Grand Remonstrance, there were elements that encouraged Puritanism to fragment that focused on liberty rather than on reform. Puritanism, zealous Protestantism in general, focused on the individual conscience. It focused on a laity that was active, that thought for themselves. This might lead to men and women making their own religious choices. A belief in predestination of a minority who were only going to achieve salvation might lead in different directions. If you didn't know exactly who the predestined saved were, perhaps you should have a compulsory national church where the godly and the ungodly, the saved and the damned, mix together. But if you thought that you could probably know through exploring your own soul and through your life in the world, if you could probably just about know who the godly were, Perhaps the godly should gather together voluntarily in separate congregations and shun the wicked or the ungodly. So rather than a compulsory church, 
that led in the direction of people making their own decisions, their own voluntary agreements to join particular congregations. The free preaching and discussion of Calvinist doctrine might lead to different conclusions. Was it likely anyway that a merciful God would only save a few people? So first point would be that Puritanism in an atmosphere of freedom might well fragment rather than unite for Reformation. Secondly, the Episcopal Church and its powers of compulsion collapsed very quickly in the early 1640s. Bishops, from which the term Episcopal comes from, bishops disappeared, church courts stopped acting, and censorship of the press, which was conducted by bishops, collapsed. The Parliament did make attempts to reassert control, but for a decade or more, people had freedom to discuss ideas, to spread their views through the press, and to campaign for their support for their ideas, and to build their organisations. So the breakdown of existing authority and the lack of any immediate replacement of a church ruled by bishops gave people the freedom to develop their ideas, to spread and campaign for them through the press and in person, and to build their organisations. Thirdly, although civil war was alarming to many people and in many ways, there was excitement and exhilaration in defying the king and in a belief that you were fighting the Lord's battles. This was particularly seen in Parliament's new model army, which had a long, unbroken series of victories after its establishment in the spring of 1645. Even the controversial and unprecedented public trial and execution of King Charles I in 1649, to some people, was evidence that God was doing marvellous things for and with his people. Normal authorities were being overthrown through the action of ordinary soldiers. The implications were obscure, but they were much debated. And in particular, millenarian ideas spread. The ideas that these were the last days before the second coming of Christ to rule for a thousand years with his saints – millenarianism coming from the word for a thousand years. These were extraordinary times, extraordinary measures were occurring and more might come. The army, of course, is particularly important, but such ideas also had an impact on many other people who were not fighting directly in the war. Fourth point is that Parliament's plans for overall reform of the church was subject to delay and division. And during this time of delay, arguments that there should not be a compulsory comprehensive church at all developed. Now, in the early stages of the Long Parliament, it seemed possible that bishops, with their powers limited and with bishops being associated with the committees of other ministers, might survive and remain the basic structure of the church. But in the excitement of the meeting of the Parliament, the zeal for reformation in what was termed in a petition root and branch grew. People, particularly in London, petitioned that bishops were inappropriate and should be removed root and branch in a properly reformed church. What action did Parliament take in this situation? 
How did it try to take control and particularly what was the role of the Scots? Parliament appointed a synod, a national assembly of ministers and some laymen, to work out a plan for a reformed national church. This was known as the Westminster Assembly because it met in Westminster Abbey. It met, first of all, in July 1643 and was joined soon by representatives, ministers and laymen from the Scots, the Scottish Church, because in the summer of 1643, the English Parliament made an alliance with the Scots against the Royalists. This was sealed by an oath here called the Solemn League and Covenant, taken by the House of Commons in September 1643 and ultimately to be imposed on all adult males in England. And this looked as if it was going to commit England to a Presbyterian system. Now, the first clause of the Solemn League and Covenant bound people to Sincerely, really and constantly, through the grace of God, to endeavour in our several places and callings, the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline and government, against our common enemies, and the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland. The important point there, of course, is that the Scots religion, the Scots church only needed to be preserved. It's only in England and Ireland that you need reformation. And it went on to say that their ideal, and it echoes in a different form, Charles I's ideal, to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity and religion, confession of faith, church and government, and so on, together, so that we are our posterity after us, may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. So uniformity and reformation is what the covenant declared its commitment to. But none of this happened. First of all, a minority, but a distinguished minority of educated clergy in the assembly argued for a looser and more voluntary structure. It's known to its adherents usually as congregationalism or as independency. Independence, again, is a term mostly used by critics of the system. It drew on the experience of New England where the English emigrants were mostly godly people who gathered together in congregations on a local parish level who were independent of each other. They talked and consulted together, but it was not the system in Presbyterianism where the regional committee could impose their views on the parishes within it. Conformity could only have worked if there was a common nationwide acceptance. What was the response of parishes to these proposed reforms of the way they worshipped? On a parish level, under Congregationalism, full church membership, that's right to take communion as well as the right to attend, full church membership was confined to the visibly godly. It's sort of semi-separatism. The visibly godly who sometimes were asked to publicly testify how God was working on their souls and in their lives before they were admitted to the church. It's a voluntary body with 
personal testimony often of their faith. And there was no overall regional or national structure. Each congregation was independent of itself. It's the birth of modern congregationalism. Most of these churches, I want to say, were orthodox in their basic beliefs. They were friends. They'd been at universities together with Presbyterian ministers. They were educated. They were ordained ministers. But because they did not want to be part of a national Presbyterian structure, they wanted at least some liberty outside a national church. And they were associated by men like zealous Presbyterians like Thomas Edwards with more radical sectarian separatism and speculation. And they were accused wrongly of believing in widespread complete toleration, which they didn't believe in, but they required some liberty outside any national church. So the division in the Westminster Assembly and amongst broader Puritan opinion and experience between a national Presbyterian system and a decentralised congregational system is important. Perhaps even more damaging, though, to the hopes of overall reform was the Parliament's own reluctance to support a full Presbyterian system which was seen as giving too much power to the clergy over the laity. So the legislation went backwards and forwards between Parliament and the Assembly, lots of arguments about where the ultimate power lay, and it was only in 1648 that a full blueprint for Presbyterianism passed in the Parliament only passed in the summer of 1648 to become almost immediately irrelevant because it was followed by the army coup, which we know as Pride's Purge, in December 1648. Pride's Purge that ultimately led to the trial and execution of the king and also led to the suspension in 1649 of the Elizabethan laws enforcing church attendance. This established de facto religious toleration for Protestants. Parish churches survived and most ministers remained serving in parish churches, but their attendance was voluntary. And a Presbyterian system could not work as a voluntary system. It was established as a national comprehensive system. So although it operated partially in places like London and Lancashire, The legislation that established it was never really operative. Parliament's army, which drove through the trial and execution of the king, according to an orthodox Puritan, Richard Baxter, became a hotbed of independency and more radical, indeed, ideas. Richard Baxter wrote that Honest men of weak judgments had been seduced into a disputing vein made it too much of their religion to talk for this person and for that. Sometimes for state democracy, sometimes for church democracy, sometimes against forms of prayer, sometimes against infant baptism, sometimes about free grace and free will, and all the points of antinomianism and Arminianism. And it was the army that really drove this radical religious thinking. In one of the most famous declarations of the 1640s, the army declared in June 1647, when they were in revolt against a Presbyterian-dominated parliament, they said, We were not a mere mercenary army, 
hired to serve any arbitrary power of a state, but called forth and conjured by the several declarations of Parliament to the defence of our own and the people's just rights and liberties. Amongst those liberties were freedoms for those who, upon conscientious grounds, may differ from the established forms of religious orthodoxy, while they live soberly, honestly and inoffensively towards others and peaceably and faithfully towards the state. And this notion of a parliament's army, a parliament's victorious army, fighting in God's cause, demanding religious liberty, is very important to prize purge, to the republic and to the removal of any compulsory national church from the agenda, really until the end of the 1650s. Religious liberty was called for by the army and to some extent by independence in the Westminster Assembly by Congregationalists. The democratic movement, the levellers who emerged from the separatist congregations that sprang up in London in the early 1640s, called for decentralised government based on popular consent and near-adult male suffrage for annual parliaments in a series of manifestos called Agreements of the People. Clause 10 of the 1649 Agreement of the People said that We do not empower or entrust our representatives in Parliament to continue in force or to make any laws, oaths or covenants to compel any person to do anything in or about matters of faith, religion or worship, or to restrain any person from the profession of his faith or exercise of religion according to his conscience. Nothing having caused more distractions and heart-burnings in all ages than persecution and molestation for matters of conscience in and about religion. So that's a plea for very widespread religious liberty, But the Levellers did not support the Republican or Commonwealth regimes of 1649 to 1653, regarding it as too authoritarian, and they were suppressed. This questioning of the fundamentals of organised religion must have really caused turmoil and confusion. What happened? In this de facto religious marketplace, where there was no effective compulsory national church, and there was a stress on voluntary activity and the individual conscience, I want to indicate some of the previously fundamental religious beliefs that were challenged. First of all, if God's spirit might inspire anyone and religion was a voluntary activity, why did you need an educated ministry, specially ordained to their positions? Lay preaching flourished as never before. In 1646, Thomas Edwards, an Orthodox Puritan and a supporter of a national church run on Presbyterian lines on the Scottish model, produced three books running to almost a thousand pages in all. His title, Gangrene, implied you needed to cut off error before it spread and that even small errors could lead to worse ones. There were vivid stories of lay preachers, that is, men and sometimes women who had no education and no official appointment to a church, 
Vivid stories of lay preachers roaming the country baptising adults, usually women, usually naked, usually at dead of night. Summing up, he said, Among all the confusion and disorder in church matters, both of opinions and practices, of mechanics taken upon them to preach and baptise, as smiths, tailors, shoemakers, peddlers, weavers, etc., there are also some women preachers. The author, Thomas Edwards, was given to paranoia and did exaggerate, but his work gives a flavour of the outrage and fear of social disorder that profound religious division generated in some, probably most people. For others, of course, religious freedom was liberating and exciting. Even if Thomas Edwards exaggerated how many weavers and how many women actually did preach, it's clear it is a very significant activity. In the next place, if a church was a voluntary gathering of the godly, why on earth do you baptise infants? You baptise infants as a mark of their membership into a compulsory national church. If a church depends on the visible godly, you have to wait till people are old enough to make their own decisions and their own declaration of faith. So that in the 1640s and 50s, Baptist congregations spread throughout the country, perhaps to about 250 different church congregations. Was the national church flawed but acceptable? Should you keep it going because most people weren't into voluntary organisations? But if the church was evil and voluntarism was dominant, perhaps you should separate altogether from a national church. And the national church, the church ruled by bishops, the Episcopal church, and ideally a Presbyterian church, the ministry in those churches was supported by the compulsory payment of tithes a tenth of your annual profits or increase to the national church and its ministry. But why should you pay tithes if you didn't have anything to do with that national church? What were the new religious groups which emerged out of this confusion? For example, the Quakers? The Quakers, in many ways the most strikingly and permanently successful of the groups who emerged in the 1650s, believed that potentially everyone could be saved. Everyone who identified with Christ by embracing the light within could receive salvation. It's worth mentioning in this context that the early Quakers were also very aggressive and in your face, unlike the Quakers of today. The minister Ralph Jocelyn was attacked in the street by Quakers who shouted, There cometh your deluder, and woe to the false prophet. So there's aggressive attacks on the Orthodox and aggressive raising of support. Quakers in particular refused to pay tithes and often suffered imprisonment and harassment for it. Indeed, many people worried about tithes, but they were a form of property, sometimes had been alienated to lay people. So after much heart-searching, tithes did indeed survive all this religious ferment. The ranters were a small but alarming group who were active very significantly just after the regicide, the execution of the king, when everything seemed up for grabs. The ranters argued that as they were God's elect and as they could not finally fall from grace, whatever they did, 
conventional definitions of sin did not apply to them. And indeed, swearing, drunkenness and sexual promiscuity, which they all enthusiastically indulged in, might be a sign of your election. More serious and a genuine threat to the early protectorate, which was established in 1653, were the fifth monarchy men, although the men also included the most influential woman prophet of the period in Anna Trapnell. But the fifth monarchist men take their name from the prophecies in the Old Testament book of Daniel that prophesied that after the fall of four successive earthly regimes, the fifth monarchy would be the rule of the saints, preparing the way for the second coming. Fifth monarchy men worked practically to establish the rule of the saints. England should be a godly republic run by members of gathered congregations, largely run by themselves and their allies. There were hopes that the bare-bones parliament, a nominated parliament that met briefly in 1643, would usher in the rule of the saints, but it didn't. And so fifth monarchists saw Cromwell's assumption of personal power in December 1643 as a betrayal of the godly cause. Their leaders were imprisoned in 1654, they were regarded as a genuine threat to the new regime, and they finally imploded with a futile, tiny rising in 1661. I also should mention the mystical prophet Gerard Wynne Stanley, who also inspired, like the ranters by the regicide, but not like the ranters in any other way, he was inspired in a trance to encourage his friends to dig the common land together in Surrey. A voice told him they should work together, eat bread together, to restore the earth as a common treasury for all. A brief attack on private property and an argument for communal living. The diggers had a brief flowering 1649-50 to 50, but were dispersed, harassed mostly by suspicious neighbours, rather than by central authorities who didn't really take them very seriously. So does this flowering of multiple religious groups signify that England was becoming a, a land of religious liberty? The instrument of government, the written constitution that established the protectorate in December 1653, laid down more limited but still very significant degree of religious liberty. First of all, they did say that you needed some form of loose, not compulsory national church, saying that the Christian religion, as contained in the scriptures, be held forth and recommended as the public profession of these nations. They also said, None shall be compelled by penalties or otherwise, but that endeavours be used to win them by sound doctrine and the example of a good conversation. The next course said that such that professed faith in God by Jesus Christ, though differing in judgment from the doctrine, worship or discipline publicly held forth, were to be protected in the profession of their faith and exercise of their religion, provided that they did not abuse this liberty to the civil injury of others, the disturbance of the public peace, and provided that this liberty was not to be extended to paupery or to such as under the profession of Christ hold forth and practice licentiousness. So this is a more limited religious liberty. In the first place, it was alongside 
a public profession, a national church that was to be given financial support, and that endeavours for religious unity were to be made, but there's no forced religious unity. Liberty was not to be extended to popery. The disturbance of the public peace referred to Quakers, who spent a lot of time disturbing the public peace and attacking parish ministers. And what was Oliver Cromwell's attitude when he became Lord Protector? It has been argued that Cromwell regarded liberty as the best way of achieving unity. People would find many ways to reach an agreed religious truth. It's clear that other people, including John Milton, the the poet, thought diversity in debate was essential because it wasn't clear where the truth was. But this did not imply toleration of all Christian religions. Catholics were certainly excluded. Cromwell was not a persecutor, however. Catholics who kept their heads down were not persecuted. Only one Catholic priest was executed during Cromwell's rule, and he virtually jumped up and down and begged them to execute him rather than letting him go. Quakers imprisoned by alarmed local governors were sometimes freed on Cromwell's initiative. A degree of religious toleration rare in Europe was present in the England of the 1650s, rivaled only, I think, by the Dutch Republic, where Jews and Catholics could also, at least in private, practice their faiths. Anxieties about Quaker transgressions and disorder and about the social implications of religious freedom in a situation where husbands and wives, masters and servants might choose to go to different churches did alarm more conservative people. In particular, the Quakers' rapid success in the early 1650s was often conducted in competition with Baptist congregations. And in that context, there were very serious divisions over family authority, with the Baptists being very angry if women left for the Quakers. Women sometimes said, my husband made me do it. And Baptist ministers would then urge the women to disobey their husbands. And all that created a sense that social dislocation, social upheavals were being encouraged by religious liberty. And in the chaos after Cromwell's death in September 1658, religious divisions and their consequences were amongst the motivations for people who in the end turned with some reluctance to the restoration of the monarchy. Diggers and ranters had largely disappeared by the restoration anyway. And fifth monarchists did not long survive their 1661 ill-planned and ill-supported rising. Baptist Quakers and Congregationists, however, had built identities, doctrinal definition and organisational strength in these years of freedom so that they could survive the years of persecution after 1660 and emerge into legality through the Toleration Act of 1689 that followed the glorious, so-called glorious revolution of 1688. For Presbyterians, the road to becoming a denomination was rockier and winding. Presbyterians had been opposed to the sects and to the army that backed them throughout the 1640s, although in the 1650s they were somewhat reconciled under Oliver Cromwell. 
and Presbyterians played a major role in bringing about the restoration of Charles II in 1660. Again, they hoped to complete a national reformation, but they were soon, in their view, betrayed and most zealous Puritan Presbyterian clergy were thrown out of the church in 1662, along with more radical ministers. And Presbyterians faced a generation of painful readjustment before they gave up their hopes of creating a reformed national church and became a dissenting organisation outside that church. Finally, how would you summarise the outcome of this period of religious confusion? Despite the restoration of the Episcopal Church by 1662, religious pluralism amongst English Protestants was permanently established during the years of civil war and revolution. The monopoly of the Episcopalian Church could not be re-established through persuasion or persecution in the 1660s, 70s and 80s. The gulf between church and chapel Anglican Church and dissenting congregations marked English and Welsh political, social and cultural life from the 17th to the 20th centuries. Professor Hughes, thank you very much indeed. We hope you've enjoyed this programme. To learn more about the implications of the fragmentation of Protestantism, explore the resources in the accompanying programme notes. You can also listen to two additional episodes in this series, in which Professor Hughes discusses the political divisions resulting from the unfinished Protestant Reformation of the 16th century and religion's contribution to the fall of Charles I. You can find them on our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk, as well as at Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While visiting our website, do subscribe to our regular newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down, to listen to many more fascinating podcasts by distinguished academic historians and to learn about upcoming programmes. Just click the link.